subsidiary websites of a Gotham City like uh oh, hold on, pause. Sure. Got a phone call. It's my wife. Hold on. You can keep rolling. This might you might hear a fight on the air. Hello? Hey, what's going on? Okay, I'm still recording. I'll probably be recording for another 10-15 minutes or so. We decided to do some other stuff. Okay. What do you want to eat? Okay, we have like uh, compelling. leftovers. So maybe we can figure something out. All right, well, I'll see you in a little bit then. All right, love you. All right. I showed her who's boss. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Welcome back to another FilmNerds.com podcast. I'm your host, Matt Scalisi, and we are wrapping up our six-part series today on prestige blockbusters with a look at uh, what is definitely the most recent uh, prestige blockbuster in the Hollywood world, The Dark Knight, uh, Christopher Nolan's uh, sequel to Batman Begins, uh, and what is quickly becoming one of the most uh, financially successful films of all time. It's currently the second uh, highest grossing film in American cinema history behind only Titanic. It is going to get a re-release in January, so maybe maybe have a, a chance to become number one. We'll see. Uh, and it is uh, very heavily praised by the critics as well. Uh, so it most definitely meets our standards for Prestige Blockbuster. I'm going to welcome in our uh, guest programmer for this series, Ben Stark. Welcome on in, Ben. Hello, thanks for having me. Welcome on in. I like to say it that way sometimes. Welcome, welcome <laughs> on in. What's the matter with saying it that way? Nothing. There's nothing the matter with saying it that no. way. No. So, so uh, as, as some of our film nerds, visitors might or might not be aware, uh, we, have, we have actually done a roundtable podcast on The Dark Knight, uh, it was a lengthy discussion between myself and Ben Flanagan and Graham Flanagan, two of our uh, regular contributors here at Film Nerds, and uh, we we sort of covered the full gamut on this movie. It was we did it shortly after the film was released, and by the way, you can find that in the Roundtable Podcast section on the website. We we did originally intend to include uh, Ben Stark in that podcast, but due to scheduling conflicts, he was he was unable to participate. Um, and so it's fortunate we've got him now for this series, and we're gonna we're gonna get his take on the Dark Knight in this podcast. Um, so first off, let's let's start off Ben by by saying, um, you know, that this is this is a film that I think is is unique, uh, especially in the in the past ten years, in that it is a it is a superhero film. It's a it's a comic book, you know, it, in in as much as that has become a genre, really. Uh, thanks to the the sort of popularization of the the Marvel films, um, but Batman obviously is, is not only is he not a Marvel character, he's he's definitely uh, has become a different character in the in the film world in the last ten years uh, than than a lot of these comic book uh, heroes that we've seen brought to the screen. Talk about what makes Christopher Nolan's Batman different than a lot of the comic book characters that have 
been made into movie franchises. I think uh, I think the big the big thing is that um, Christopher Nolan kind of looks at it as looks at the character of Batman, um, not the not the idea or the the story. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, you can leave this in maybe, but I'm I'm listening to the score on of this film on iTunes right now, and uh, it actually makes me want to speak in like with more gravitas. Does it, does in it my make voice. you want to talk like this, Stark? Yeah. No, it doesn't make me want to talk like that. It the makes me want to run. talk like uh, Commissioner Gordon at the end of the movie. Oh, okay. Where, like, everything I'm saying has such a universal meaning. And I'm doing it again right now. Uh, sorry. Like I said, you can leave that in if you want. But, I probably uh, will. <laughs> great. Um, but anyway, Christopher Nolan looks at Batman, the character, more as a as a movie character and as a literary character than the way other filmmakers have looked at Batman and other superheroes as production design potential. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. yeah. I think nipples, on the, nipples on the rubber chess piece. Right. Or, you know, how, how many pipes can we put into Gotham city? How, how art deco can we make this city look? All right. Taking, the, those, taking a shot at Tim Burton there. Well, yeah, yeah and, and, but the Schumacher movies were more Art Deco than that, even. But like the the idea that that this is a different universe and this is a crazy fun universe, and let's just go um, make this goofy fantasy about this guy dressing up as a bat. Christopher Nolan look, looks at it more as the character of Bruce Wayne in as he goes through his life, as he has these traumatic moments that kind of urge him to make these kind of disturbing and uh, absurd decisions um, that are all in in the way he tells a story and structures the story all logical, organic decisions. And I think that's the big word that you're going to get sick of hearing as I talk about this movie, is it's organic. I think it's all, it's all, it's all grown out of something that happened earlier in the universe and in the story of the film. You know what I mean? Oh, I totally like there's agree. A, I, there's I, a history uh, there, even more in any of the other movies that we've talked about. And I think the difference is whenever all these other blo- prestige blockbusters, three beers in, um, these other prestige blockbusters um, have come together, when all the writers get together and talk about it, they talk about the overall concept and the overall themes. Um, but I think whenever Nolan got together with David Goyer and his brother, um, I think it was more of a an intimate, just kind of like, all right, what happens next, kind of uh, kind of thing, and what what happens after that, and then they just kind of string along this kind of um, history arc, this history of the city, uh, of this history of Gotham City, and how it how it was once a nice place to live, and how it's not anymore, and how it's changing, and how why it's like that. And I think they 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 kind of go into that and give it an there's a world outside of the edges, you know what I mean? He he looks at it as a history of, of these characters and a history of this, the city rather than a standalone kind of graphic novel approach, which is how Tim Burton approached it, which is fine. And it's a and it, the first Batman, the first Tim Burton Batman was a really strong movie because he approached it as a kind of one-shot thing, you know, this this self-contained story about this uh, event or this this group of you know, this comic book adventure. Um, and it works that way. But once you start adding to that universe, you realize that there wasn't anything else there, you know, that it was all surface. 
even more so that the most interesting thing about Batman Returns is its production design, and the characters are completely, you know, given like ninth billing uh, after all that stuff, and then you know it just went downhill from there. So, uh, but but that's a trend with most comic book movies. I think there's only a handful um, that have really approached the material in an organic way and really looking at it. And like we talked about in the Lord of the Rings uh, show, not glazing over um, little things like, okay, kill his, his parents die, so let's so he turns into a giant bat, ah, whatever. You know, instead of glazing over that, they look at it and they say, wait, 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 that's that's insane, that's a crazy idea, that is not something a normal thinking person is going to do. So how how what what's going to push a person that far? And once he's pushed that far, how else is how far else? Is, how more, this is going to get cut out, by the way. How much further, um, maybe? I don't know. How much further is he going to get pushed? Let me say <laughs> How much further is he going to get pushed um, once he's gotten to that point? Um, so I think it's, it's like I said, just an organic quality that the, uh, that the other Batman films and the majority of other comic book films um, don't have. And also I would add that Nolan's not looking at it as a comic book movie, you know? Uh, the way that Raimi, I, I'm afraid Sam Raimi kind of looked at the first Spider-Man movie, which was, okay, this is a comic book movie, so we got to have our origin story, and then we got to introduce our villain, and then we got to have him fight. And it's it's all kind of going off of that Tim Burton Batman template, story template, which again worked for that movie, but most recent comic book, or the, the, the glut of comic book movies lately have used that template. If you look at Fantastic Four or Daredevil, um, you know, they all kind of use that same story arc and Nolan didn't and, uh, decided to go a different way because he looked at Batman Begins as just an adventure movie, you know, almost like a spy movie with, uh, with these kind of foreign, um, kind of far reaching consequences to the things that Bruce, Bruce Wayne is going through. And then obviously a lot of comparisons have been made between, um, the Dark Knight and lots of kind of canon crime movies like Heat or The Untouchables or something like that. And he kind of approached it that way. He said, this isn't a superhero movie. This is just a a crime movie, a movie about a city um, that has this massive crime problem that's changing, you know? Yeah, I think think putting so much of the focus on this Gotham City uh, backdrop, this this, uh, creating uh, this, this universe behind it, uh, is something that it's it's almost it's really kind of strange that other comic book films haven't done it, particularly the Marvel films, because I think one of the things, and I'm, I I, I confess I've never read a comic book, never picked one up, uh, so I know very any, any? no comic book no I, never I I know I know very very little about it, and you know I know a lot of the stories. Um, Didn't I, you say you read Bone? Uh, That's no, a comic. Yeah, I guess I guess that counts. Okay. I I would say I I've never read a superhero comic. Superhero book. comic. Um, oh wow! So so one of the things that that I I'm familiar with about Marvel is uh, that they did create this sort of contiguous universe um, where there are a lot of things going on and they they created a, a mythology almost um, and you know we talked about that with with Lord of the Rings in the last podcast that part of what gives that movie such depth and. Uh, makes the stakes so high is that they've created a universe behind it uh and and it's a convincing universe and it's many layered um but that's something we really haven't seen out of any of this sort of wave i guess it started with x-men this wave of 
comic book movies coming out of that Marvel uh, universe is it's really the format of those films typically is uh, the heroes have their origin. Uh, we see the villains. The heroes fight the villains. And yeah, there's there's a threat to do something to the world. There's a threat to uh, harm innocent people. But basically, since we haven't seen anything of the world outside of those heroes, since since there hasn't been a universe and a mythology created behind them, uh, we don't care about that world. We don't care about th- those innocent people and that world around them isn't real to us. And the only real threat in those films uh, is the heroes dying. But, you know, it seems like when the, the emphasis that Nolan has put on making Gotham City a real city and make focusing so much on the problems that it's having and the, and the issues that its ordinary citizens uh, are having, like uh, Commissioner Gordon, you know, we see that he's got a, a family – uh, you know, a wife and a kid, uh, the stakes become much higher to us because when when Gotham City's being threatened, uh, it isn't just this sort of faceless backdrop. It's a it's a world that's been created, and there we see those innocent people's faces, and they they have names and they have lines in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think a lot of people kind of one off kind of uh, uh, a cheap buzzword for these um, this movie. Um, uh, in both Nolan and Batman movies, is that they're kind of realistic, uh, and I think that's 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 ridiculous. I don't think I don't think he's going for realism. I don't think I don't think this, these are realistic movies. The first movie features um, a car jumping across rooftops, and uh, you know, and the second one has plenty of kind of non-realistic elements in it. And I think, uh, but I think the the strength of it is not necessarily realism. That's not what makes it. Um, you know, intense or anything like that, or, or or makes us care. It's it's more about the emotional consequences. And I think that's kind of what we're both saying is that there's consequences to everything, not consequences that the Earth is going to get destroyed, or the hero's girlfriend is going to get killed, or that the hero is going to get killed. But emotional consequences that people's feelings are going to get hurt, you know, or that people's are that a, that a city is going to have uh, that a city is going to have messed up ideals, you know, or a messed up idea of what good or good or bad is. And I think that's what, that's what makes it really interesting is because it takes it so far beyond, um, just death and living. It's, it's, uh, it takes it to an emotional level of, of things that are a lot more important than that. And it's, it's all based in consequences again, uh, born out of organic kind of events and organic kind of storytelling. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do uh, I'm gonna touch on some of the things that we that we hit on uh, in the podcast in the roundtable podcast that I can remember just because they were nitpicky issues because we had an hour to talk about it but I'm kind of interested to hear your take on some of these issues that came up sure. with Ben and Graham uh, for one some of the you know they had a they had a bit of an issue the, these these are two guys the, the Flanagan brothers who uh, obviously. <laughs> They have a lot of they have a lot of dedication to the source material of Batman. Um, they they're very big fans of the Burton films, and uh, one of one of their beefs with this movie was uh, sort of I guess the word I would use is betrayal. They feel like uh, some of the elements that's very crucial to the Batman franchise and to the Batman uh, story as it's been created in all of its previous uh, forms were were glossed over or were not properly done in in this movie uh, one of them being that that Alfred 
doesn't uh, sort of repair his equipment and uh, have that other sort of role besides being his butler and father figure. Uh, another another issue being, you know, the Batmobile being kind of having having to have a logical explanation as opposed to being just a car. Um, how do you feel about these sort of peripheral Batman uh, elements that were that were maybe dropped or uh, ignored by Christopher Nolan? Do you? Do, I guess here's here's how I would here's how I would ask you the question. Um, <laughs> uh, is is it okay to uh, take certain things from uh, the Batman source material and say leave out other elements, or should it really be treated with more reverence than that? Well, I think I think that question um, it kind of presumes that that. There is anything irreverent about what Nolan was doing, and as a as a direct uh, uh, con- uh, confrontation to what they were saying, um, his movies are more um, they stick to the source material a lot more than the Burton movies do, and uh, I think that whatever whatever's going to get the best movie and the best screenplay and the the most um, the most forward moving story is what you have to go with. And I think sometimes if, if, if it works best for the, the universe that they're working on, um, for Wayne to use his, his resources as a millionaire that has this privately owned company to make the Batman weapons, I think, yeah, go with that, you know? And not only that, but use a character from the comics, Lucius Fox, um, to, to be the kind of head of that division of Batman's repertoire, I think, I think it's a very smart decision. I don't think that's a slap in the face of the source material. Um, but again, I would. A lot of these answers are going to be rooted in, in the in the off-air argument between right. Flanagan's and myself. Because also, I mean, in the Burton movies, did Alfred fix his car? No, he didn't do anything. He no, I, I think Alfred. There. I think Alfred in the. I'm not sure about the Burton movies. I know in the Schumacher movies, this is true that. Uh, like the TV show, Alfred has kind of a of a of a role as sidekick to the superhero. He's he uh he does sort of help him build some of the things in the Batcave, and he's he does help him repair some of his stuff after a fight, you know. Uh, and he's certainly very very involved in Batman's operations. In the, uh, and in I, the other Warner Brothers movies, I don't remember. I. I think I've seen him several times. I don't remember him ever wheeling out from under the Batmobile and being like, "Sir, the <laughs> need an oil change." No, but I you think know? he does. You know, he is down in the in the Batcave, and he's 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 pressing, always got his tucks on. He's, he's not. Pressing, he's not ever. He's, he's never got like a wrench. I think he's pressing buttons. I think I never shot that. No, you're making stuff up. He's not, <laughs> yeah, he's, he runs the stereo in Batman Returns. I think he puts the CD in right. that has. Uh, yeah. Okay. He maybe he's like the computer guy. Look, I think he is. I, I think regardless, I think he's, that's that, that's not saying that he's not an active character in in the Nolan movies. You know, I mean, he plays a pretty big part in the first film in the forward moving action, and and also in the second, especially emotionally, um, which I think is more important. I think uh, the fact that they that Nolan uses Alfred as an emotional um, part of Bruce Wayne's life um, and a kind of um, narrator almost in his movies is a lot stronger uh, than the way he's been used before. And 
I have to say, um, better than often the way he's used in the comics, which is just as somebody to work the computer every now and then, you know? Yeah, I really think, I I think particularly with the tone that was set uh, in The Dark Knight and Batman Begins, I think it would have been dishonest to the tone to have Alfred be involved on that level. I think it would have, I think it would have, been seen as sort of winking at the audience a little too much to have right. him involved in the technical aspects of what Bruce Wayne's trying to do with his Batman operations and you know and it, and it just goes beyond the capacity of that character you know that that character he has a job as a as a butler and he has his role as as what he needs to do he doesn't have time to build and fix those things. Nor does he have the resume to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> That's true. Well, he might. You kind of get a wink at his past in the second movie. But like, but he does help assemble some things in the first movie, and he kind of helps uh, Bruce kind of figure out the logistics of getting everything and making sure it's it's covered, you know, and that nobody suspects it, and, and organizing how part of the part of the suit is going to come in from China and the other part from somewhere else. And I think it's a yeah, I, I that that's not a, a valid complaint. You can just cut this part out, <laughs> podcast, because it, it we just wasted our time. That's all right. No, no, it needs a, look it invalid needs, complaint. It needs to be addressed. I think uh, the another another quick hit here the the use of the use of the sonar technology in this movie, uh, and this is something I have to say I do agree with the Flanagans on in in our discussion. Um, I think it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit jarring and distracting, and I don't think it's a particularly effective uh, special effect or a particularly effective plot device. It's a, it's a little bit absurd. I don't, I don't know. How do you? How did you feel about that? Um, I, it, it didn't raise any red flags for me. I thought I thought it worked just fine. The, um, I think it works on a thematic level really well uh, because it it again pushes Batman to really question what what he can or what he has to do um, to to fulfill his mission that he thinks he has to fulfill. Um, and it it also kind of works. There's like an ongoing um, um, theme throughout the whole movie of like systems and grids um, that I saw uh, from like the first shot. You know, it has that like grid-like building and it's like a slow track in. And every grid, every, every, all, every window, which is in this... And in, in, in this interlocking grid is the same size, and everything's the same, and it's just it's just you're like you're looking at the system, and then all of a sudden one of the little windows blows up, and it's I think it's a really good summing up of the whole of the whole movie and the whole idea of the movie that we're all working, we're all in the system, we're all you know on the same level, but then there's there's forces that are operating above and below that level, and even within our level, every now and then there's that little anomaly. And I think the Joker represents that anomaly um, of just that person that's of uh, that gets struck by that by some sort of force of nature that they're outside of the system, and then it sometimes it takes another person that's outside of the system to fix that or to smooth it out or to at least make us, help us address it. And I think the way that they illustrate that with the with the sonar technology is uh, is really smart thematically in that it's Batman having a visual, a three-dimensional visual of the system. You know, he's using he's using the grid to find that little anomaly in it to 
to snuff it out, which is a hard ethical question to ask. You know, is it is that even necessary? If society is asking to be pushed over the edge, who are we to stop it? You know, from going that way. But I think uh, also from a from just a plot level, I think it's a smart idea, and I think it it's set up well. Um, I think, and, and I think it's it's completely realistic again in the universe that he's setting up because this isn't they're they're not making the French Connection. Um, they're not making a, a you know a really harsh realistic movie. They're making an emotionally realistic movie. It is set in this kind of you know obviously it's a melodramatic world. Um, like I said, a car jumps across buildings in the first movie, and you know who's driving it? A guy dressed as a bat. You know that's like that's not a realistic idea, and I don't think the filmmakers are arguing uh, for that. I think they're just asking you to accept it on the terms of the universe of the film, and I think. Uh, I don't think it's hard to accept based on what else we've seen. Another another uh, interesting topic brought up um, was the the future of this series uh, because I I think we all do believe there's going to be a third uh, film in this specific universe in this specific storyline uh, whether or not Christopher Nolan is involved in the same capacity uh, because we don't know that yet. Um, but but you know, I, I guess part of my sentiment in this was I, I really felt like uh, the Joker uh, was was being made into a, a larger part of the of the story, a bigger part of uh, the overall yeah. plot of this series, and it's un- unfortunate that uh, that the you know logistically it, it's going to have to change a little bit because of the death of Heath Ledger, and you know one of the questions I asked to Graham and Ben was. Uh, do you, as a viewer, uh, take any issue or have any problem with recasting that character uh, with another actor? Is you know, I think I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of talk about how iconic Ledger's performance was for a number of reasons. In part because it was a great performance, and in part because uh, of the romanticizing that's going to be done about it being his sort of last full performance, but. I think that that performance is going to be viewed and that character is going to be viewed as a little bit untouchable. Um, how do you feel about the idea of recasting the Joker for uh, for a future film in this specific universe, in this series? Uh, yeah, I think it'd be fine. Um, I think I think another very smart thing that they did was that they, they approached the Joker and, and like you said, they, they're obviously planning on bringing him back because he even says it, you know, we're destined to do this forever um but he what's what's so smart about it is that they they made him an elemental force like i was saying he's that anomaly in the system and uh he kind of appears you know i I read or i heard an interview with jonathan nolan and he was talking about how in his his mind he he said he doesn't know what christopher nolan or david goyer think of this or any of the actors or the rest of the people that worked on the movie but his personal view of the joker is that he materialized the second um, we see him in the movie, standing on the corner with the mask in his hand, and that he's this elemental kind of like, kind of like Loki, you know, the the god of chaos or whatever it is that just like appears when when the system reaches a certain point, it's got to have this um, this kind of agent a, agent of chaos as he says in the movie or this kind of force of nature and they talk about that in the movie that 
that um, insanity or kind of chaos is just like gravity. It's just a force of nature. It's just going to happen. It's just a consequence of, of, of living on Earth. And um, I think the, the, the smart thing, that, that's, that's one smart thing they did. And I think thinking in that, I think if you repackage the Joker, maybe not in the first frame of the next movie, you know, but as like a, a very minor subplot, you know, maybe you, you just hear his voice through the story. I don't want to write the story for him because I don't want to set it. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, if you just like see little, if you tease him in the third movie and then maybe bring him back as the focal point of the third, not focal point necessarily, but, you know, uh, the main villain in the third movie as somebody else, I think that'd be fine. And I think, um, I think because you, they set him up as this el- elemental character, you could, you could have him take um, a similar form, you know, and and just have the idea that just like his story changes, you know, how he changes his origin story, his appearance changes, and every couple of weeks he's he's he re, I don't know, kind of restructures himself, and he kind of shows himself a different way, and maybe in the next one he's more well dressed, you know, he's kind of sees himself as a as a little bit more. Uh, more of a criminal elite, so he kind of dresses himself up a little bit. So maybe he cuts his hair, or I don't know. But so I think I don't think it's, it's an untouchable character. I think the performance is great, of course. I mean, I can't you can't refute that. And it does it does hurt, you know. And I think when we see if we see another Joker in the series in this, you know, take on the series, or even not this particular universe, I think when the next time we see Joker in whatever form, I think we're all going to hurt a little bit, you know. Because we're gonna be like, oh man, you know what could have been, um, but I think what what we have is fantastic, and we should appreciate it. But I think if I think you did ask, didn't you ask uh, recasting questions like who who they might pick? Oh sure, we can go on that. I mean, do you do you have an idea for uh, for who you would choose to be? Uh, you know, this, I think, this uh, next version or iteration of the Joker. I, I my vote would be Sam Rockwell. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I you know I think. I think uh, Sam Rockwell uh, is certainly I, I him specifically. I can see him doing it. I can see uh, his face making that happen. He's got a lot of energy. You know, I I've yet to be uh, fully wowed by Sam Rockwell in the way that I'm hoping to. But I have to say, uh, I would have said the same thing to you about Heath Ledger. I, I really never saw uh, out of Heath Ledger the amount of juice that we got out of him in as, as the Joker. I mean, it was, a, it was a breakthrough performance. Uh, it, it was, it was finer work than he had ever done. And it's perhaps it's the writing and the, and the direction and the character himself that brings that out of, uh, of an actor. And that could do the same thing for Sam Rockwell. But, you know, I think for people who, who would doubt Rockwell, um, you know, he, he's done a lot of, a lot of interesting work that, um, that not as many people have, have seen as his mainstream movies, uh, and yeah. one that I would one that I would suggest to check out is David Gordon Green's Snow Angels. It's a oh, is that, is that good? Really interesting performance by him. There's a there's a, uh, some great flashes of sort of instability and uh, a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of chaos in that character as well in Snow Angels. And uh, you know you can see the potential to to play a character like the Joker from from even from that movie. Yeah, I I uh, I'd like to see it. Yeah, you should watch. Uh, have you seen Assassination of Jesse James? Yes, yes. He's really good in that. I thought I thought that was that was kind of the eye opener for me because he was so much more subtle than usually see him. You know, he's usually really kind of you know this kind of arrogant guy. But, yeah, he's uh, he's usually that, 
the character kind of this kind of guy, and I think he played that really well. And I was like, oh, okay, this guy's not just what what I thought he was. But anyway, that's a that's a huge tangent. That's but a, no, I th- I do think I do think I don't think if if they brought him back, yeah, I think I I don't I can't deny that it would wouldn't hurt a little bit, but I don't think it it's impossible. I don't think if they did it, I would boycott the movie and you know wear a Heath Ledger lives shirt or something like that. <laughs> but like, uh, but I do think as far as the future of the franchise goes, um, if if Nolan didn't make another Batman, a lot of people have said this as a kind of melodramatic thing, and I kind of was like, oh come on, you want to see another Nolan Batman movie, don't you? But like at the same time, like yeah, I think I could live with this, you know, if this was it, um, and just if somebody else wanted to take a different approach to Batman. I think I could live with that. Um, really, even is, with the the end of this of this plot wise, you yeah, wouldn't feel dissatisfied. Yeah, yeah. I of course I want to see it, but at the same time, if Nolan came out in a press conference and said, "I'm done. I'm just going to make my own. I'm going to make different kinds of movies now," I would be like, "Okay, I respect that because you you earned it." You know, if he had done, if he had said that after Batman Begins, or uh, or the way I don't know the way. Singer kind of did it where he just talked about how awesome X Men Three was going to be when X Men Two was getting made, and then jump ship. Uh, if he did it that way, it'd be different. But I think I do think there's a certain finality to the Dark Knight that it could be ended on that note, and you'd be like, oh, more than a. I don't think a third part is necessary for me to enjoy the Dark Knight the way other second movies might be. No, it wouldn't. I I agree. It would not make the Dark Knight less enjoyable. Um, but I do think that. The series, when you put it all together, needs a third part. It would it would be like making The Empire Strikes Back and then oh, leave, it leaving it be. No, it wouldn't. It's not that extreme. <laughs> it's come a little. It's a little bit. Come, come back to Earth, please. <laughs> it would be like making uh, Pirates of the Caribbean two and not making Pirates of the Caribbean three. Which, by the way, I didn't see Pirates of the Caribbean. 3, I wish so. they had done it reverse. I wish they had not made the second one and just made the third one because the third one's pretty good. Second one, not. Uh, can we talk about the score real quick? Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about the score. What do you think? What do you think about the score? Well, as we as we mentioned in the Lord of the Rings podcast, I, I'm not a score expert. I'm, um, you know, I'm a populist type of uh, guy when it comes to scores. Everything. Yeah, yeah, everything really. No, <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's it's got uh, some nice themes in it that that uh, you know work really well for that ominous tone. I, you know what I think more than anything, uh, what I remember about this score is that it it helps to further that sense that we talked about of this being a crime movie. It makes this movie uh, more in that genre of uh, of heat, you know, or uh, or the Untouchables. Well, not necessarily the Untouchables, but you know that yeah. that world, that that uh, emotional. Uh, yeah, tone. it has the, the there's a especially the Harvey Dent stuff is like there's like a real kind of brassy. Kind of city hall kind of feeling. Yeah, it's and, a, you uh, know, it makes it, it reemphasizes that idea of this being uh, a crime thriller as opposed to a, a big epic superhero movie. Right. Not that there's not big epic ideas, but I think what's what I like about it. I'll I'll just say it off the bat. I think I think what Newton Howard and and Hans Zimmer have done with these two movies. I think the the work on this score is the the smartest. It might not be the catchiest. It might not be the the most whistle in the shower music, but like the, I think it's the smartest, most intelligently in- integrated music, possibly, possibly in like blockbuster history and mainstream movie history, because they 
they use themes, but to a very small degree, and they use layers, and they they hint at little ideas of of, of cues and music. I don't know enough about music to really have a a hundred percent informed uh, opinion on this, but I can't have an opinion because this is the internet. Um, so, like, I think I think they they layer stuff and they they bring stuff up and then put it back, you know, and then bring it stuff bring it back again. And I think it's a really smart way to to do it and the, a really smart way to establish a hero and establish a character because they don't give you everything. And there's like two times in the entire film where they really give a hint at this, this Batman kind of hero theme that does, we don't even ever hear in the first movie. We hear like a one layer of it. And the second movie, they, they put another layer onto it and you can see the direction they're going, but they don't give it to you because he's not yet fully formed as a character. And it's a really simple idea, but it's really smart and it's really, it works really well for this. And I think also just on an ambient level, um, and Nolan is that kind of director. He he pieces together the kind of disparate parts of his movie that kind of no, don't necessarily hook together with editing. He lays down a pad of kind of this ambient kind of mood music a lot of the time and ties everything together that way. And I think as as an ambient, uh, it works really well because it's constantly building and it's constantly and even the way they use. Uh, I think it's really brilliant. Again, it's one of those things like. If you just said it out loud, you might somebody might be like, "Oh, that's kind of a dumb idea," but I think the way he used even like the sound of like his cape fluttering in the in the first movie uh, in the score for that, and, and sometimes in the second movie, it's just like a really smart little thing that you, you don't you, you don't want to overdo. If you overdid any of these ideas, everybody would call you on it, and you'd look like a hack. But they both kind of know. What's what's just enough to kind of get it across in a subtle fashion. So I, I just have a lot of respect for it. Well, all those details you mentioned, you know, they fit perfectly into the idea of this series being prestige blockbusters. This is a Batman movie, you know. This yeah. is a this is a superhero movie, and we're talking about uh, all of these interesting subtle touches that you could only get from a certain caliber of filmmaker, someone who uh, who didn't, uh, you know didn't come up as uh, someone who's learning to produce a product uh, for a studio. This is someone who uh, has been a filmmaker for his entire career and, and a, a true uh, storyteller, uh, someone who is interested in making films because he's got something to say and he's he's got stories to tell in interesting ways to tell them. And he, uh, he, he really believes in, uh, you know, staying true to his characters and staying true to uh, some kind of reality that he's trying to create on screen uh, and not just Christopher Nolan but you know all the films in this series that we've mentioned to a certain extent um have a little of that going on i think think that's what uh you know more than anything that's kind of the the definition i like for this prestige blockbuster is it's a film that is uh highly happens to be highly marketable um yeah, but yeah. but it is it's being made by someone who uh, didn't didn't come up and wasn't trained uh, as a as a producer of you know merchandise basically it's uh, right. it's made by it's made by someone who has a passion for the work. Yeah, but they still know how to integrate um, those kind of mainstream kind of pop ideas like like the marketing in Jurassic Park, for instance, or uh, or the explosions in The Dark Knight. The, the explosions actually factor into the to the overall theme. You know, it's like one of the only movies I can think of where explosions mean something. Um, 
And I think I think Nolan knew that going in. You know, he was like, "All right, I gotta, I want to make a smart movie, and I want to make a movie that I'm going to commit to, and that's that I'm going to want to continue making in nine months." You know, but at the same time, I know the genre has this, these expectations. And I know the, the audience has these expectations. So let me think about how I can do that in an in a intellectual way. The same way Spielberg did it on Jurassic Park where he's like, okay, I know there's going to be dolls. There need to be dolls. Um, I might not get to make Schindler's List the way I want to if there's not a lot of dolls. <laughs> so how can I integrate that into the, uh, you know, into the overall story? And I think he did it brilliantly um, as Nolan did. And, and, and all these movies, I think, have that same idea you know, of, okay, how can – how can we get our cake and eat it too? I think is another great way to kind of sum up the whole series. You know, how can we tickle the brain, but also kind of have fun um, watching a movie? So that's, that's why I, I like all these movies. I, I love three of them, um, four of them, I would say absolutely love them. Um, but I like all these movies because of that, because they, they, they go for something else. Um, especially as much as I actually, the two, I don't like as much T2 and The Matrix are even more brave because they did it in a time where it was so rare, you know. In the 80s, there were some pretty solid blockbusters, you know, with the Indiana Jones series and, and Star Wars and everything and and the Aliens movies. And I think, uh, I think uh, Aliens, the movie. Um, so I think, I think the environment of making smart kind of blockbusters was a little bit healthier there. But then in, uh, in the 90s, it was a little bit more threatened. Um, because like we talked about before with CGI, the formula was simplified, you know, it was just put CGI in there and make money. That's what's all we have to do. And you get really bad movies. And, you know, I respect T2 and the matrix a lot for going in the face of that and saying, okay, well let's, that's fine. We'll do that, but let's go a little bit further. Let's push a little bit further. Let's not just make Dante's peak, um, or (laughs) volcano, uh, you know, or Armageddon, which is, the worst kind of blockbuster, the worst kind of shallow, silly blockbuster there is, in my opinion. I'm with you. I'm with you on that, Stark. In fact, we might just have a, we might have another series as kind of a companion piece to this of, uh, whatever the opposite of a prestige blockbuster. You know, sort of disgusting. You should be ashamed of yourself for making this blockbuster. Yeah. And gross. Armageddon, Armageddon will be the first film in that series. Yeah. I I like it. I've only seen it once in the theater. And uh, it didn't entertain me when I was a 15-year-old kid. That I remember they said the phrase, it's going to blow more than once in that movie. <laughs> Did it? I can't remember. Yeah, Did def- it actually blow? Oh, yeah, definitely. That is a they, line of dialogue. Blow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, on that, we will uh, we'll wrap up this series. It's been a very interesting series, and I've, uh, I have hope uh, everybody got uh, – an interesting perspective on on some of these blockbusters uh, and and how they might be you know a little more interesting than some of their their uh, big budget counterparts. And uh, Ben, we look forward to doing further series with you in the future and further uh, podcasts of all kinds here on Film Nerds. Uh, and uh, just thank you, uh, thank you so much for your participation. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Thanks, Ben. Thank you.